Welcome to the Bear Hug Experience, where we cozy up to the fire in our digital den and immerse ourselves in the inspiration born from exploring the hidden narratives and inevitable plot twists that shape every compelling startup journey. Join us as we showcase inspirational guests from bold investors with the Midas touch to pioneering entrepreneurs at the helm of today's most thrilling startups. We'll also hear from courageous go-to-market leaders navigating the frontier of emerging tech and the unsung heroes bringing all the people and parts together to form unstoppable dream teams. Here's your host, Craig Ward, founder and managing director of Bear Hug Recruiting. Get ready for an insightful journey. The following is a conversation with Phil Durr, co-founder and managing partner of Peakspan Capital, a growth equity firm with $1.5 billion in assets under management based in New York City and San Mateo, California. Phil is a graduate of Princeton University and the Stanford University Graduate School of Business. He also served as an officer in the U.S. Army Reserve and has been a software investor for 25 years, serving on the boards of over 40 growth stage companies. Prior to Peakspan, Phil worked at Investor Growth Capital and Morgan Stanley Venture Partners on the technology and software investment teams. He's also a graduate of two culinary art schools, an avid tennis player, runner, husband, father, dog lover, and is one of the most infectiously charismatic leaders I know. Welcome to the Bear Hug Experience. And now, dear friends, fellow entrepreneurs, investors, and startup enthusiasts, here is Phil Durr. All right, Phil Durr, how are you? I'm doing great. Really energized and appreciative to be here. I'm so glad you came on the show. I really appreciate you doing this. Um, I like to always start off these conversations. I mean, you and I have known each other for what, going on about a year. We got a little over, I think. Yeah. We got introduced through uh, a company that I had worked with and done some recruiting for that you ended up funding, Trace Air, right? That's right. Excellent and company. Awesome entrepreneurs. In fact, Maria, one of the founders, was on the show a couple weeks ago. Oh, that's great. That's yeah, awesome. Yeah, she'll be being published here soon. So, and in fact, uh, I have a thing for your portfolio company since we met. I've met a bunch of your founders and I've absolutely just loved everything about your team, the way that you run your operation. Your portfolio founders are amazing. So I had a chance to come to one of your events and had a fantastic time in Austin, Texas last year. Uh, really excited to have this conversation, talking to one of my favorite investors. So you're on a mission, right? And it's a little bit of a different mission than you know some of the other people that I interview, such as the founders or some of the go-to-market leaders. But uh, why don't we start off with you telling our listeners kind of what you're up to these days and why it matters? Yeah, well, um, you know, my, my mission has been a has been a consistent mission. I've had the privilege of of serving and working with entrepreneurs for over a quarter century, entering my 27th year working with entrepreneurs, which is amazing when I think about that. Um, I've also had the just amazing opportunity to serve on 41 boards in my career. Wow. Um, you know, I would say um, going back maybe about 20 years ago, um, I identified along with some of my team members that um, uh, there was a large contingent of entrepreneurs that that I didn't feel were being well served by the products, the, the financial or capital products that were available to them in the market. And um, 
these were special entrepreneurs. They had they had scaled their business to a reasonable level, you know, kind of say four to fifteen million in revenue scale. And they had done that with almost no outside capital. And so they were sitting in this amazing opportunity where um, they built something of real value. They were seeing very strong growth. They own a lot of their company. And because of that neat combination of essential ingredients, the definition of what could be interesting to them um, is, is pretty broad, right? Um, um, there could be a lot of outcomes that, that might be worthy of their effort. And I, I felt like a lot of those entrepreneurs that had that profile were being pushed to take a conventional Silicon Valley product that was predicated even back then on this notion of kind of go hard, go hard or go home or swing as hard as you can for the fences. And for the entrepreneur that had scaled their business on a capital efficient path to reasonable revenue scale, that, that sometimes kind of floundered or fell flat. And our goal was to offer a new and different product to that target customer that felt much more philosophically aligned to their mindset and to their opportunity. That's why you founded Peakspan. That's exactly right. Our, our, our goal was to be laser focused on serving that entrepreneurial profile, that, that kind of bootstrapped or capital efficient uh, entrepreneur that I just described. And you know, guess what? They are legion. There are lots of them and they live all over the world. So I've, I've worked with entrepreneurs who are amazing in Australia. I've worked with entrepreneurs in Poland, in Greece, in the UK, in Canada, and then of course all over the US. But, but um, uh, yeah, the, these entrepreneurs call a lot of places home. Wow. Okay. So yeah, there's such a, there's such a story here that I want to really dig into, but just from a high level perspective to get us kind of rolling. Um, I think you've, you've answered the question of what is your mission? I think it's a perfect jumping off point. So before we kind of go and work our way into going way more into depth into your particular philosophy and how this is more aligned with this, this niche you, this sort of gap you found on the market, what, a, what can we tell our listeners about what you've learned about yourself that makes you so perfectly suited to take on such a project, to do something very different in the, in the world of investing? What superpowers do you possess that are really driving this thing? Call it a super passion or superpower. What have you, what have you learned about yourself up to today? Um, well, you know, it, it's interesting. It, it's some of the same qualities that I see in my entrepreneur uh, that, I, that I work with. And it's, it's also some of the qualities that led, that led me to start Peakspan and help me Launched Peakspan with my partners, with 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 Matt Milimuka, um, and some of my early colleagues, Sunket Merchant and Jack Freeman. Um, it, it's um, I would call it pragmatic optimism. So it's it's having a very aspirational view of what you can accomplish, um, but instead of, of of believing that you need to um, kind of embrace the far reaches of that ambition up front. It's, it's taking joy in the journey being one of sequential accomplishment and improvement, mm. right? Um, it, it's a little bit of, of, I think what you um, will sometimes hear people that are, that are, that are craft people in their, in their art or practice, they, they actually enjoy the journey of becoming better and better and better at what they do. And, you know, I see that quality in my entrepreneurs. Um, I aspire to have that quality. Um, you know, kind of my own life philosophy and view. 
Uh, and I think it's fundamental to the success that we've seen with our firm and with the folks that we partner with. So pragmatic optimism. And if you go back to, you know, the first two or three boards you sat on versus the 41 <laughs> that you've since sat on, um, you've gotten better over time. Is that is that a fair statement? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think um, one of the benefits of wisdom and experience um, uh, is that you uh, become much more patient. <laughs> um, you can still be very committed, um, but you have a deep appreciation for the level of effort that is required to accomplish the goal. And you have a deep respect for factors that are sometimes not fully within your control and how they can, how they can influence um, your, your journey. Well, I mean, just looking back over the things that have happened in the last three or four years alone, <laughs> I mean, the, the rate of change uh, and the patience required to understand what the hell is going on out there. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that on top of everything else. Um, what, what about uh, on the flip side? I'd like to ask people just to give our listeners um, a little bit of a window into a person's thinking around what are some of the things you would refer to as a kryptonite or an anti-passion? things that you find that wear you down or suck your energy while you're on this path toward fulfilling your mission? Oh, it's such a good question because I always ask people the same, uh, um, the same thing. Hmm. Um, you know, I, um, uh, I find that I really enjoy um, thinking about the vision. I really enjoy thinking about um, how we can improve our product offering. Um, I really enjoy thinking about how we can be best in class and innovative mm -hmm. in, find, in finding and serving our entrepreneur. You know, I, I'd say that I have colleagues and partners who have such a strong superpower in identifying and perfecting the process by which we accomplish that vision. Mm -hmm but they leave me gobsmacked, right? Um, at times, I, I just, I'm so impressed with their their ability to take that vision and craft a, a process and a machine um, to executing and then being obsessed with all the details that go into constantly refining that machine and that process. And so I, I'd say that, that um, uh, I, I love it when I can work with teams where you have that kind of collection of expertise, if that makes sense, because it, it kind of magnifies everyone's superpower and, and wraps the uh, wraps the, the kryptonite in a lead line bo box, right? Because you've, you've kind of neutered it. Right. So are you are you kind of indirectly pointing at the the details are often better figured out by other people that can compliment you? <laughs> Not, you know, not really the, the, the details. I just, I have folks that are, that are, that are genius at um, maybe also recognizing um, some of the limitations of the vision or the strategy. And then they're, they're expert at understanding if that's the mission and strategy we're going to pursue, this is the best way for us to pursue it. It's actually beyond details. It's, it's the how. Mm. Right. So you give them the, the direction and the why and maybe even the what, and then they figure out the how to get it done. And I, I think the things need to live in harmony. Mm -hmm. It's it's like a symphony, right? If you have all of those instruments playing together, they sound beautiful, where some of them may sound um, less powerful when they're when they're played by themselves. Yeah. Okay. Well, why don't uh, I, I always like to do this uh, exercise? And you know, I've done some recruiting for for you and your your portfolio companies, and I do this with all the candidates that I talk to. 
Um, it's a little bit of a surprise and people on the podcast sometimes get surprised that don't know what's coming too. But I like to say right out of the gate to people when I meet them, when I'm recruiting them, um, I ask them to tell me their entire life story in five minutes with a time cap. And I have them look at the clock, time themselves and say, whatever comes out is fine. There's no rules. There's no boundaries around it. I just want to know what you think is the most important thing I need to know about you in five minutes. Go. And people, people are oftentimes a little bit surprised. But Wow. I am a little surprised. But I'll go right now. Yeah. Let, so, I want, so do um, it. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 was, I was born and raised on the East Coast in Washington, D.C., uh, my dad was a naval officer, very successful naval officer. My mom was a reading specialist. Um, it was, um, uh, you know, kind of a, a prototypical family unit. It was myself, my sister, and my parents. Um, I had a was was privileged to have a really wonderful childhood. Um, grew up in a neighborhood where I uh, could ride my bike with my my friends all over our our town, um, and. I um, always loved learning. Like that was my thing. Um, from a very young age, I loved reading and really loved the, the journey of learning. Um, I left um, home and went to school on, uh, stay, still on the East Coast. Um, and I thought I was going to be an active duty army officer. Ended up getting a reserve commission my senior year of, of college and had to kind of figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And, uh, you know, candidly, by good fortune, some research, some advice, but good fortune stumbled into investing. Mm. And um, after a two-year kind of indentured servitude, working more in the structured finance, private equity uh, realm within investing, I discovered growth and, and venture investing. Um, and I was love at first sight. I just, I really loved working with entrepreneurs. I loved the pace of change. I loved the ability to feel like I was part of the decisioning that created impact. Um, I loved the growth orientation of the business. Mm. And so I, I was fortunate enough early in my career to find my passion and um, embarked on a journey um, to become better and better at partnering and working with entrepreneurs to help them realize their vision. That journey took me to California um, where I met my wife, um, and we ended up building a life out here. Um, I have two wonderful children of my own um, who were 18 and, and 20, and uh, I, I, I pinch myself <laughs> when I think about how fortunate, I, how fortunate I am to have the incredible life partner that I have in my wife and these two just amazing children. To think that I had anything to do with the people that they've become um, you know, is really self-actualizing for me. Um, I launched Peakspan with uh, my partners, Brian Mulvey and Matt Milimuka. And as I was alluding to earlier, it was through recognition that our target customer was not being well served. There was, there was product kind of a product gap or white space in our market. And we felt like there was an opportunity for us to do better by this target customer. We felt so passionately about that, that, we spun out of the business that we were working together in to launch Peakspan. And, you know, if I, if I fast forward the clock, we went from um, a team of three, soon four, because um, we were joined by our, our current CFO, Jay Lance. And um, today we are 27 team members, 1.5 billion in AUM. Um, we've uh, structured and invested and assisted 43 entrepreneurs and growing 
at this point. Um, and we're really, really proud of the entrepreneurs that we backed and the progress and success that they've shown. Uh, and I think also derive enormous satisfaction out of feeling like we had anything to do um, with the success of those businesses. How's that? Was that, was that a nice snapshot? Yeah. We're not going to talk about cooking. <laughs> oh, I'll throw that in too. On a personal level, um, you know, I, I find that there are things that, that um, outside of your, your work, obviously that bring you joy though. You know, one of my, um, uh, one of my, the, the clear sensation sentiments I have is that I love my work so much that I have to turn it off. Mm. If that makes sense. Um, and when I do turn it off, there are other things that I enjoy doing. I've, I'm, I've been a member of, a couple of, of dad's bands, most notably um, a, a, a band called Guns N' Rose. <laughs> what? And, um, <laughs> and then I also, um, I also love uh, cooking. I've, I've attended two cooking schools in my life, um, one in New York, the Peter Cup School, and then another in Paris um, called Les Coupies de Gastronomie. Um, and then I, uh, I also really, really enjoy history, um, I'm part of two book clubs. One is a World War II book club that I've been a member of now uh, for, for seven years, and no one has ever missed a meeting wow. or not shown up having read the book, which is amazing. Wow. And then the other is a more kind of a more generic um, current events and um, a general topic book club. Um, and then I have two amazing um, golden retrievers that also bring me a lot of joy. Um, they wake up every morning, and it's like they've never seen each other. So I always <laughs> laugh at that. Great, great life perspective. Just pure happiness. <laughs> That's amazing. Hey, Phil, when when you look back, I mean, there's probably been a, a ton of people that have made a huge impact on you over your life. But who do you think sort of like pre pre age seven? I mean, you having two kids, 18 and you said 20, I think, right? I've got a couple of kids, too. And I think back and I, I wonder, psychologists always point to pre age seven and say, you know, like you're you're most of your character shaped by seven, supposedly. Um, who, who do you think, you know, mom and dad are probably obvious things, but uh, do you have any like real memorable um, people that had just a significant impact on the way you looked at the world and some of your trajectory at an early age? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I mean, you, you called out. You know, of course, I would I would mention my parents and in particular my mom. Um, my dad was a naval officer, so um, for those that 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 don't um, don't know it, that means that that my mom kind of uh, had to carry double duty. Yeah. Um, and uh, everything from helping me with homework to throwing the baseball with me in the front yard when I was you know, trying out for Little League. Um, I'd also call out my sister because she was an amazing and is continues to be an amazing role model. She's four years older than me, accomplished professional in her own right, and just has one of the most amazing life attitudes, um, kind of optimism, um, infectious charisma. Hmm. And so I find that to be very inspiring as well. And then I, you know, I remember when I was in. Um, I remember when I was in fourth grade, my teacher, Mrs. Masnick, um, <laughs> we were, we were doing kind of teacher student review and I had, I had, um, uh, received like good grades for that quarter. And I, she called me into her office and, um, and said, you know, I, I think, um, that you could be a really great student if you applied yourself. And she said, I, I think you need to decide in this moment, if, if that's something that's important to you and whether you want to, whether you want to really invest in it. And I, I, I still to this day, remember that moment palpably because she, she called it out. She put the goal in front of me and I saw that as a real kind of, um, 
turning point for me because I decided that learning was something that was indeed going to be fundamental to, to my personality and to what I wanted to accomplish. And so I, I, you know, I give her a lot of credit as well. Was this something that she did to all the kids or was it, did you feel like even if she did, it was unique to you at the time? Oh, I, 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 I am sure she was such an amazing teacher that she, there was some uh, variant of, you know, kind of that conversation with, with other students too. But um, it was a very kind of intimate and personal moment for me. Um, it was a very direct comment. Um, she framed it in a way that had real impact. Huh. Um, and it, it, you know, it, if I look at the slope of my development, uh, pre and, and post that discussion, there's a noticeable kink in the curve. So she just saw something in you and wanted to really encourage you to, to like understand that she saw you differently than other people. Or that she, she saw that, that, um, that there was an opportunity for me to apply myself mm -hmm. and um, she had enough currency with me that she felt like she uh, was in a place to, to have that conversation. Mm. Um, and boy, did I, boy, did I act on it? Um, because I think, you know, the, on the back of that, and it, you know, for me, it was, it was a trusted adult who I looked up, uh, you know, who, whom I looked up to uh, setting this goal in front of me. And, um, I had a, you know, kind of a very important moment of reflection hmm. and then, um, and then acted from there. But yeah, I, I, I give her a lot of credit too. Be obviously there was more than just that moment. Yeah. Um, but boy, do I recall, boy, do I recall that moment. That's so interesting. So she taught you, um, you know, focusing on applying yourself and setting a goal and your sister, it sounds like rubbed off on you from like a, an optimism perspective. What did mom, how did mom rub off on you? Um, my, um, my mom, um, when I talk about that kind of pragmatic but almost stubborn optimism, mm. uh, that that trait comes from my mom. Um, I I had the good fortune to grow up in a household where the view was um, anything is possible if you apply yourself. If you really work hard for something, um, you can achieve it. And I, I think that is such a gift to give a young person. Um, the view that, that, it, that you can accomplish a lot if you, if you apply yourself, um, that can be such a wonderful foundation, uh, to build, to build your life on. And my mom, uh, gave that to me in spades. And so with, with dad being an army, uh, an army officer, you said, right? Navy, Navy officer. A Navy officer. Okay. And then you at one point wanted to follow in his footsteps, uh, to become an army officer and then something changed, right? Yeah, so it, it, it was interesting. It was um, um, I'm now dating myself, but my my senior year of college was um, after the Gulf War, and when the U.S. Uh, with the end of the Cold War expected uh, a large peace dividend. Right, um, uh, our view was that we didn't need to have a military that was as large as the military that we'd had during the Cold War because the world was going to be different you know, after uh, Perestroika and Glasnost and the fall of the Soviet Union. Sadly, it looks like we we were uh, misguided in that view. But because of that view, um, I was given an opportunity to take a reserve commission in the Army instead. Mm. And I, I did that. Um, but it meant that, that, you know, kind of October, November of my senior year of college, um, I had to really scramble. <laughs> Most of my peers had been planning – uh, their careers, at least for the you know last couple of years of, of their college career, and I had I had expected that I was going to be an active duty armor officer or artillery officer, and um, 
And so I had to scramble to find what I was going to do instead, um, given the reserve commission. And um, I, um, uh, you know, there's nothing like pressure to focus the mind. And so I did a lot of research, talked to a lot of friends and respected adults and, um, you know, thankfully found uh, private equity as a, as an interesting path that, that might be, um, might be open to me. And, and so how did it come to the point where you and your colleagues started seeing this white space? What was the sort of the, what's the story around that? Yeah. Um, so what I, what I noticed was, um, you know, everyone talks about the, the, the power law dynamics mm -hmm. in, in venture, right. And the, um, the adoption of that philosophy, the view that, um, the game-changing companies in your portfolio need to be whatever you want to call them, unicorns um, um, or, or kind of outlier outcomes. Um, that, the, the adoption of that philosophy resulted in every company being pressured to, quote, grow at all costs, right? And whenever I heard people say that, it really kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Why would you ever do anything at all costs? Just think about that, right? That means that you might, what, sacrifice the entire business behind that growth mandate? That seems kind of silly, right? Especially if you've worked six or seven years to build something. Why would you ever do anything at all costs when you can do something prudently or deliberately or carefully as opposed to at all costs, right? And... um you know, the analogy that I sometimes use with folks is, um, you know, I remember when my kids were four, I coached them in um, AYSO, in soccer, Burlingame Youth League soccer. And Craig, you have kids. How old are your kids? I have an eight-year-old girl and a 12-year-old boy. Okay, so you're like fully, you, you, you appreciate exactly what I'm talking about. When they're, oh, yeah. when they're just entering that, that youth league sports um, age and you're coaching them, the coaching is really more... Um, um, uh, a little bit like advanced childcare. <laughs> it's controlled chaos. You get like 15 kids on the team and um, you'll watch them out on the field and there's kind of like two positions, right? Position one is I am right next to the ball regardless of my actual position, even if I'm goalie. Um, and then position two is sitting on the grass looking at the clouds like Ferdinand the Bull. Do you remember the childhood story, yeah. right? Um and and I, you know, the analogy I use with entrepreneurs is is imagine a world where someone came up to me and said, um, "Hey, um, Phil, I will give you fifty million dollars if you can get one of these kids into major league soccer by the time they're uh, eighteen years old." I would look at my palette. I would look at the the that field of kids, and I would say, "You know, I don't know. Like, you know, the, one of the kids." staring at the clouds could be the next Ronaldo. They're four. You know, who knows? Um, and in order to maximize my chances as a rational actor of winning that 50 million, what would I do? Well, um, Craig, you know me pretty well. I'm a pretty rational guy, goal-oriented person. So I would clap my hands. I would gather those kids around me. And I would say, kids, I've got the most extraordinary news. I just heard that all of you are going to be major league soccer. I know. I'm very excited too. I can't believe it. And I'm just going to need you to sign this contract agreeing for the next 14 years that you're not going to do tuba or play the trumpet or go to class or be in Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts and you know, ignore the small print where we're going to put you on a 
steroid program that would make the Russian swim team blush. And I would do all of that because it maximizes my chance of having at least one kid that gets into major league soccer, right? Mm. That's the best way for me to maximize my outcome. Now, what are the odds that any kid actually is going to make it? Very, very small. So I'm setting a bunch of human beings on a mission that I know is probably going to be pretty bad for most of them, right? Um, in fact, it could be really bad for, for all of them. And I'm doing that because this, the likelihood of me securing the outcome that I want is maximized by having all of them try. And that, my friend, is called portfolio theory. And the challenge with portfolio theory is that if, if the participant in the portfolio has a portfolio of one, they don't have a 30 or 40% failure rate. It's a 0% failure rate or 100% failure rate. Mm -hmm. And our observation was that there are many entrepreneurs out in the world that don't want to work for six or seven years and potentially end up with um, nothing to show for it. In fact, many of them have already been working for six years with low or no pay, and they have everything in the world in, invested in the business that they work for and founded. And so it makes them nauseous to think that they might keep working as hard as they can and end up with nothing because they were given a goal that was the wrong goal. And so, you know, I, I can take all sorts of different analogies. We could, we could pivot this to a mountaineering analogy, um, which Peaksman lends itself to. But what I would say is our, our vision was to approach that, um, that target customer and say, you know what, maybe Major League Soccer, maybe, but maybe you're just going to play high school soccer and you're going to find that that's great and you're going to stop playing high school soccer and move on to other things and, and that could be fine. Um, the only time it isn't fine is when you go all or nothing. You grow at all costs. You organize your capitalization strategy around major league soccer and then change your mind because sometimes you are unable to change your mind, right? You've signed the contract. Um, you are stuck. And I will give you a great example. There are thousands of companies in Silicon Valley right now who were pressured to sign the contract for Major League Soccer, and they're now stuck. They can't sell their company. They can't raise capital. They've got shareholders who are arguing and have different agendas, and they're stuck. And I think that's tragic. It happens every single time we have a market correction in the Valley. Um, and every single time it happens, it's you know usually after a couple of years of, of craziness and excess. And you know my target customer doesn't want to find themselves in that situation um, doesn't mean that they don't—they're giving up on the vision of playing Major League Soccer. They're just not going to underwrite that as the plan of record, do or die, right? Because why would you do that? You don't need to do that. Well, can, can we? I'm going to pause there. Is that? Yeah, yeah. Is that helpful? That, yeah, that's super helpful. I want to dig into it a little bit more because I, I I felt myself getting a little bit nauseous when you talked about you know, these thousands of people being kind of underwater when the market corrects itself and they just can't do anything about all the blood, sweat and tears they poured into their, into their baby. Um, I was, I had a lot of questions coming up as you were talking through that. So is there a particular point at which, like, is it by series B, are they underwater if the market corrects or can it happen as early as seed or does it take, 
help me just understand sort of the size and like in terms of that thousand cohort you talked about, you know, thousands or whatever it was. Yeah. Yeah. It, it usually has a, a, a couple of symptoms <laughs> that go into this, this phenomenon of getting stuck and it can happen at C, it can happen at A, it can happen at B, it can happen at, it can happen to unicorns, right? There are, um, uh, there's a new term that you probably uh, heard about called Zerpicorns, <laughs> right? Which are, are companies that are, they were, they were unicorns in a zero interest rate uh-huh. environment, but, but probably aren't a unicorn when it's not a, a, a zero interest rate environment. And then there's, there's a new term called unicorpses, right? Which is, um, describes a lot of businesses that once had a, a billion dollar valuation, but are probably going to go under. Um, the, the symptoms are, typically that you raised too much money and you raised a lot of money at very high prices. Mm-hmm. Those are, those are things that when the market corrects, you can find yourself in a pickle because the founder may have been diluted down to a level where anything other than a big outcome means a poor return on time. Um, it also means that if you, if you raised a lot of money at very high prices, that stakeholder that you took that, large amount of money from rightfully so is going to hold you accountable to providing them with value. Right. Um, so they're not going to be excited if you come and say, look, I know we, we still have 20 million on our balance sheet, but it's clear we're not going to reach a billion. Let's sell the company for 120 million or 200 million. That conversation usually doesn't go well. Right. Mm-hmm. If someone's post money is 700. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I think that, um, Look, there, there are, I have so much respect for entrepreneurs and for investors that, that want to go for, not, you know, forget the moon, they want to go to Mars, yeah. right? Those, those businesses and, and, and those investors um, can have game-changing, atom-splitting impact around things like Gen AI and the like. But, but there's a whole lot of entrepreneurs that have really, really amazing solutions and market opportunities that, that don't need to commit to Mars, Right, at least not until they've seen the top of Everest and, and the moon first. Mm-hmm. Right, um, and and I feel like that there was a tendency over the last eleven or twelve years to fit all companies into a single go for broke model. Yeah, I would meet with entrepreneurs regardless of solution category, and I remember one meeting I had with some entrepreneurs, and they came in and slide one of their deck was this is what we do, and I was like that's cool. Well, of course, that's that's the most important thing you want to share with me. Slide two, they were like a two and a half, three million dollar revenue company. Slide two, Craig, slide two in the deck was, here's how we're going to be worth a billion dollars in three years. <laughs> and I said to them, I like stopped. I said, time out. I said, time out. Is that really the second most important thing that you want to share with me? And they looked kind of like, looked at each other and kind of like puzzled. And they said, but I, we thought that's what you all, that what you all want to hear. And I said, no, I don't want to hear how you think you're going to win the Powerball, right? Because that's, that's, that's kind of a, a fake conversation. You don't know how you're going to win a billion dollars in three years. That's nuts. Why don't we talk about how you're going to get to $10 million in ARR, right? That's a much more interesting and meaningful conversation to me um, than how you're going to be worth a billion dollars because I don't buy it. Well, and- what if they went and talked to other investors like you? Are they going to have the same response from people going, why are you doing that on slide two? Or is that just unique to you and your perspective? Like, are they fitting? Are um, they fitting what the expectation is more generally? I think, sadly, in the valley, yeah, I think there's a lot of firms that that would have been pressuring them on slide two. Tell me how you're going to be worth a billion dollars, or this is a waste of my time, hmm. right? Um, so, um, 
Yeah, I think they probably were responding to market expectation. But, you know, one of the problems with having done this for a long time is that um, you, you know, you, you call BS when you see it. And three million, most $3 million, not all, but most $3 million revenue scale businesses should not be obsessing about how they're going to be worth a billion dollars in three years because that, that's a bad goal. Right. Right. Um, you, are, you are teeing yourself up for a veil of tears if you orient your investment posture in your business and your goal set around that. That's, that's not a smart or responsible thing to do. It's like a four-year-old signing a contract that they're going to be, they're going to try their best to be in major league soccer or die trying. Right. Why would you do that? And so you, you typically get involved with companies that are looking for what we can call growth capital, right? More so than that's right. sort of, so help, can you help our listeners understand? I think two things, one, if they are going to go raise capital, are there ways to identify that are just maybe not so obvious to them, but obvious to you? about the type of investor they're talking to and how to understand how to navigate avoiding some of these pitfalls that you're talking about? Can we just do that one first? Yeah. So, um, look, I think the market is very noisy for entrepreneurs, especially first-time founders. I, I tend to serve first-time founders um, the most. Mm. And I think for many of those founders, um, they, you know, they, they've not raised a lot of capital in the past, right? So um, uh, it's not like they're an experienced hand at knowing how to navigate the the capital raising environment. Mm -hmm. um, we will frequently hear from the founders that we partner with that our philosophy is different, right. very different. We will um, frequently hear this is very refreshing that you all are talking about a much more aspirational but pragmatic approach to company development, to goal setting. Um, and it aligns with our target customer because it, it, would it be, would it be amazing if we could play major league soccer? Absolutely. And I've got, by the way, we have tons of portfolio partners that are on that path, right? But they decided to go pro after amazing high school and collegiate careers. Mm -hmm. Right. And then I have other entrepreneurs where we've successfully navigated to 175 or $200 million outcome. And it was a multi-generational wealth event for them. It was a, a very respectable outcome for our stakeholders. And it was the right thing to do for the business because of the realities of their competitive uh, dynamic and their market opportunity. Right. Um, and, you know, I think it would have been tragic if we had tried to force those companies to keep going because we all would have probably lost money. So what, what I get your question directly most of the time when we're talking to entrepreneurs, we, we will be told that um, the perspective that we're sharing is relatively unique, which, you know, selfishly, I, I love hearing that because I, I think it's a, a great approach for our target customer, for our target entrepreneur. Um, and if, if the rest of my competitors continue to obsess around trying to pressure these businesses for a, quote, growth at all cost um, uh, model, then I think... It, it makes our discussions even easier. So if a founder goes to a, you know, a, um, a venture firm and they're talking about this formula of triple, triple, double, double, right. Or something similar. To By the way, I, I gotta tell you, even things like that are usually put forward by someone who has no idea what is actually required <laughs> to do that. And I, I find that 
this, whenever you have a mantra like that, what if that's not the right model for the, the business? Let's define, right? what, like, let's, let's, let's define what it is real quick so people can understand. So talk me through the triple, triple, double, double sort of formula. Because I've heard, well, it, I've, I've actually had, means, my clients have actually told me that's what they have to do, right? So, so it, it means that you're going to triple the scale of your business twice in a row and then double the scale of your business twice in a row. And um, it is one of these generic bylines that are, are thrown about in the Valley as the standard and expectation. And again, it, it, it's, it, it is, it is in its, um, it, it, that single statement captures what I think is wrong, which is a one size fits all approach to company development. That's cr crazy. Why would every company feel pr pressure to be a triple, triple, double, double in terms of growth profile? That's, I think, see, to my mind, um, that's part of the problem. Maybe there are some companies for whom that's a great goal, but there are others where maybe growing at, 50, stitching together five years in a row of 50% growth um, with great capital efficiency, operating leverage, and growing ownership in an attractive addressable market with natural moats and walls and attractive competitive density creates monster value, right? Um, why wouldn't we want to thoughtfully think through the right approach for each business as opposed to having these overarching, um, to my mind, incredibly silly, and in some cases dangerous uh, models for these businesses in terms of their growth objectives? So you talk about capital efficient entrepreneurs a lot. You're targeting companies that are already choosing to grow organically or bootstrapped a lot of times? Yeah, and look, the, the venture industry has has grown over the last two decades. And so if, if you're a founder and you want to secure lots of capital early on, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, relative to 30 years ago, um, you have access to capital. You've got a good plan and credibility and, and the like. You, you can get access to capital early. When you take that capital, you start diluting yourself mm -hmm. and you start setting expectations around what constitutes a win. Yes. Okay. Um, my entrepreneurs, it's not, a, it's, it's sometimes they've raised no capital. So, I, you know, for example, the amazing entrepreneurs at Epignosis, one of our, our, um, uh, our first fund portfolio partners, um, those founders went to uh, almost 5 million in revenue scale with no outside capital. Mm -hmm. Um, so they really bootstrap. That's like hardcore bootstrapping. Other entrepreneurs that we've worked with, well, they'll have raised some capital, but they just won't have raised what you would typically see at the revenue scale where we engage mm -hmm. in the Valley, um, where, you know, I meet with companies in the Valley that are six or 7 million in revenue scale. And they've raised in some cases, 30, 40, 50 million to get there. Um, if, if you've raised 40 or 50 million to get to 7 million in revenue scale, um, the the outcome expectation of what constitutes a success is different, right? And probably rightfully so, because you you brought that capital in knowing that there'd be an expectation around around uh, value creation, right? Those are less interesting opportunities for you to pursue, correct? Not only not not interesting for us to pursue, they just don't fit. It's mm -hmm. you 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 um. You have already committed to major league soccer. Got it. <laughs> Whether you realize it or not, um, so um, uh, it's just not a. It's, it's just not the entrepreneur that we serve. Yeah. It's not. There's not. There's no. There's no like um, good or bad 
judgment. It's just not who we serve. We serve entrepreneurs that have optionality Mm -hmm. and we try and encourage them to embrace and preserve that optionality as long as they can, because it's wonderful to have options. It's very powerful to have options. It's very powerful to have options and alignment with your stakeholders around those options. That's awesome. So, so Phil, I'm, I'm fascinated by the, the fact that like, did initially you want to stay just us focused and then it expanded globally or reopened it globally kind of from the inception of the company? Um, you know, with this mindset, initially, we, we started partnering with entrepreneurs um, in North America. And um, what I would say is that we, we started through our research, finding entrepreneurs, candidly, all over the world. And um, because we're partnering with businesses that are at a stage where um, the, the activity and support they need from us lends itself to, uh, in the extreme, are not needing to be with them in their home market, right? Mm -hmm. So you'll hear many seed investors, like early stage seed investors, um, noting that they will only invest in companies that they can drive to Mm -hmm. because part of their value proposition is I'm going to, I'm going to like operationally help you. Mm -hmm. I'm going to help you with, uh, find executive talent. I'm going to help you on a very direct basis. Um, by, by contrast, the businesses that we're partnering with have already established very clearly product market fit. They're already, they already have one or two sales motions that are working. They're seeing very strong growth. And so um, you know, our view was, look, we can actually expand the aperture um, geographically of, of the entrepreneurs that we partner with um, so long as we feel like we can provide them with the support that they want from us and then we can stand up to the commitments and expectations that we set. And that's now over the course of our firm's almost 10-year life, um, really created a wonderful tapestry of partnerships that I think are an incredible reflection of the growing global software market, right? So we're seeing awesome innovation um, in in. I have two incredible portfolio partners in Greece, Epignosis and Yodek. Mm-hmm. I mean, these businesses are <clears throat> real pioneers in their category. They're showing exceptional capital efficient growth. Um, the the talent in those businesses leaves me with my jaw on the table whenever I interact with those teams. Um, it's awesome. I work with a company in, in Poland, Tidio, that you're aware of. Yep. Incredible employee base. And so... We, um, we have portfolio partners in Luxembourg and the Netherlands and the UK. Um, so you know, we actually feel like um, we would be artificially constraining ourselves if, if, we, if we limited some of the geographic scope um, of where we partner, if that makes sense. And, and these people that take your funding and that you partner with, their primary reason for taking the capital is to grow faster. Is that the simple way to put it? So I feel like when you're an entrepreneur and you start a business, it's a little bit like you are in this green meadow and there's blue skies and up in the distance, you see a, um, a mountain peak, right? And 
and that mountain peak is just beautiful. It's so compelling. You feel like I need to climb that peak, right? It becomes your obsession. And um, it, if it were a Disney movie, there'd be like animated bluebirds singing okay. around you. Um, but you feel so compelled that you launch yourself on that journey and you start the, 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 the hike towards that mountain. Now, early, early in the hike, you hit this deep, dark forest. Oh, and by the way, that vision needs to be so compelling because it's convincing you to stop what you're doing and, and go for it, mm-hmm. right? Um, and in full candor, I felt when we started Peakspan, I had the same experience, right? So it, it needs to feel very compelling. And, and you, you start yourself on that journey. And early on, you hit this deep, dark forest. And if I'm using the Disney analogy, now you've got like the, the, the Disney like kind of animated trees with like the scary faces and the branches are like mm-hmm. kind of reaching over and almost grabbing you. And that, that forest is called product market fit. And it sucks. It's really, really hard, right? Um, you have to build a product and hire a team and identify your ideal customer profile and build your sale, early sales motions and set your pricing and do all these things that are existential and if you can't do them, you don't make it out of the forest, mm-hmm. right? Um, and guess what? Sadly, most entrepreneurs don't make it out of the forest. They get stuck. Venture capital can be very attractive while you're in the forest because it has the perception of helping you get through the forest more easily. My entrepreneur doesn't take any venture capital, it's like they don't take any food or water into the forest and have to, <laughs> have to scrub the water going. And, but you, you get through those, that, those woods, right? You finally escape the forest. You're back in the sunlight. You're kind of drenched in sweat because that was so, such a harrowing experience. You're like, God, that was the hardest thing that I've ever done. Nothing could be harder than that, right? You're back in the sunlight. You've got four or five million in revenue. You're growing nights. You've got product market fit. You've got a sales motion that's working. And, um, now you find yourself at the foot of that mountain that you saw way back when you started the journey. And now that you're close, you're like, dear God, that is a very steep mountain. And there's no trail and there's brambles. And that's where Peakspan joins our target entrepreneur. Mm. And what we tell them is, you know what? Good news is you, you are through the woods. You've got product market fit. Bad news is this mountain you're going to find, which is called mechanized or go-to-market mechanization. Mm-hmm. This go-to-market mechanization mountain that you're about to climb, it's even harder than the product market fit woods. That's the bad news, right? Um, And our target customer is bringing us into the business as a Sherpa. We are going to help them climb those first few peaks. Mm. And as a great Sherpa, we need to know and be expert at things like pricing and packaging. We need to be excellent at things like go-to-market playbooks, product extension strategy, um, channel and strategic development. We need to be great and have partnerships with people like you that can help us with talent identification and talent conversion, mm-hmm. right? Because that's important to our, our, our intelligence scaling exercise. And so it's not only the capital, it's their conviction that Peakspan will climb those peaks with them and that the journey with Peakspan will result in a better outcome for them. The, the product that Peakspan is offering our entrepreneurs is if I go with Peakspan, the risk-adjusted outcome will be better. That is what we are selling our entrepreneur. And we need to deliver on that, right? And I'm very proud that we've delivered on it. In fact, one, one thing I'm really proud of 
is in fund two and fund three, a lot of our LPs are entrepreneurs for whom we created multi-generational wealth events. Wow. Right? And that, that, that brings me a lot of satisfaction because that's my target customer entrepreneurs saying not only do, did I enjoy the journey, but I, I actually have so much conviction in that in that product experience that I want to be part of it. I want to be a stakeholder in Peakspan. Just to continue my analogy and really bludgeon it, <laughs> the challenge with the modern the challenge with the modern venture capital industry is when that entrepreneur reaches the foot of that mountain, the modern venture capital industry tells them that the mountain that they need to climb is Everest mm. from sea level without oxygen. And what they don't tell the entrepreneur is that they have 90 other entrepreneurs that they've also told that same thing to. And they're going to have them all climb without oxygen. They're going to give them a jacket with their firm logo on it. And that entrepreneur is going to start to climb. And early in the journey, they're going to start seeing people succumb to the thin air and the cold. And they're going to realize two things. One, they're going to realize... Um, the person that told me to do this is not climbing with me. They're back at base camp. <laughs> and two, they're going to realize that person knew that most of us were not going to make it. Yeah. And did and did not care because their exposure was different, right? And I think that's tragic. I tell entrepreneurs, why would you agree to, to climb Everest without oxygen from sea level? Why wouldn't you first climb Mount Tam? which Craig, you and I could go to Stinson beach. We could climb to the top of Mount Tam in a day. Yeah. We would be drenched in sweat. And we would, th we would think both say to ourselves, I thought I was in better shape than this, <laughs> but maybe that, maybe that Mount Tam is 150 million in enterprise value. And if you and your co-founder own 60 or 70% of your business, anyone who tells you that, that 60% or 70% of 150 million for the two of you personally is a bad outcome is crazy. Cause that's a great outcome, right? And, and if you get to the top of that Mount Tam and say, you know what, clouds are coming in, competitive dynamics are changing, my category is commoditizing, I'm going to find a, I'm going to stop this journey, fine. Or you might get to the top of Mount Tam and say, boy, that was easy. Legs are strong, sun is out, now let's do Mount Rainier, right? Maybe Mount Rainier is three or 400 million of enterprise value. And you will, I think, have a much more risk-adjusted successful journey in tackling the company development challenge that way, right? Mount Tam, then Mount Rainier, then Mont Blanc, then Everest, and having the optionality and alignment with your partners that each of those terminal uh, altitudes for each of those steps in the journey are okay. That's how you build resilient value, right? And, and for my target customer, that vision of sequential company development of optionality is compelling because they own a lot of their business, right? They're not two or 3% owners. Yeah. They're, they're, they own a lot of their company. And so what we peak stand commits to them is I'm not going to commit to you. Let's say Craig, you're the entrepreneur. I'm not going to commit to you that we're going to take you to Everest, right? By the way, there's a lot of firms that will tell you that they will take you to Everest. Mm -hmm. Ask them what their capital loss ratio is, right? Because that should be an important data point for you for entrepreneurs. That is what percentage of dollars that that firm um, invests go to zero, mm -hmm. right? And if that number is too high, that means that they could sometimes be playing Vegas with your business, right? Um, <clears throat> for my entrepreneur, the idea that we have optionality 
is very powerful. I'm not forcing you to decide that we're going to do Everest. I'm not committing to you that Peakspan is going to push you to do Everest. I'm saying, let's do Mount Tam. Let's do Mount Tam and then let's reassess, right? That doesn't mean that you're going to stop at Mount Tam, to be clear. You might, we might laugh one day that we ever thought Mount Tam was a good goal. But let's first do Mount Tam before we laugh at the fact that Mount Tam is not, not a good goal. Yeah. If that makes sense. So, so what is the capital loss ratio that's good or bad? Do we have any basic parameters, just general rule of thumb for people? Yeah. So, so I, I'd say, you know, at, at peak span um, across 43, 44 partnerships, we've only had one company that, that failed. Um, and, you know, I would, I would strongly argue that um, they unfortunately got hit uh, in the face with a two by four when COVID um, hit. I won't mention their name, but yeah. it, it, we only, we've only had one business that, 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 um, that didn't work out. Um, um, and, you know, we're, we're, we're really proud of that, um, uh, that track record of success. Conventionally in venture, depending on who you're talking to, 35 to 40% capital loss ratios are not uh, abnormal. And I think, you know, I, I will tell you, in the market environment that we're in now, I would expect that you'll see much higher capital loss ratios because you will have a lot of companies that geared up for Everest and uh, a storm front came in. Right. Yeah. So I think the, I think we're going to see much higher capital loss ratios over the next uh, two to four years, if I had to guess. So you're working with people that have gone through the forest and are popping out with product market fit, and you're saying, okay, you know, let's have a more realistic set of benchmarks that we're going for that are going to get have great outcomes versus going straight for Everest. That help me contrast the other investors. Wouldn't more like when you have a ton of competition of people that don't want to deal with people helping them get through the forest? I guess that's just a different breed of investor that wants to do something a little more early, right? Versus waiting until something has actually started to happen already in terms of product market fit and they're ready to scale. Well, the beautiful self reinforcing element of our model is um, because we have always um, obsessed around this idea of optionality and healthy growth, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Um, I think a lot of firms can get stuck because if you if you build your business on a model of of saints and sinners, mm -hmm. right? So you you have an expectation um, that you're going to have thirty five to forty percent object failure rate. Mm. The companies that don't fail need to cover the loss of the ones that did, and then some, right? right? And you kind of get stuck in this loop where you're pushing all of your companies as hard as you can because that's the only way you're going to have the saints. But in the process of doing that, you create a lot of sinners, right? You redline the business. Um, if you step back and say, well, like, what if we had a world where no one needed to be a sinner? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and and um, where we had a much more patient orientation, a much more um, uh, achievable set of expectations. And then by the way, then if you decide to like surge, um, outstanding, but that was never like the requirement, right? Um, our model allows us to be much more um, easy in the saddle, if that makes sense, with our partners, because um, we didn't predicate the relationship on um, uh, unrealistic or unreasonable expectations, if that makes sense. Well, you're beholden to your LPs, right? And the expectations you set with them on the timeframes for turnaround, right? For liquidation, et cetera, right? And our, our, LPs, our LPs, by definition, 
um, have bought into and um, applaud this model of res- you know I, I think of it as like very responsible value creation right. like we don't we're not we're not we're not trying to push our companies to do things that introduce um, self-imposed risk mm-hmm. um, in the in the venture environment especially in 2020 and 2021 you saw this explosion in pre-money values. Mm-hmm. And sometimes as an entrepreneur, that can make you feel great. Like if someone invests in your company at a huge pre-money, um, maybe that like that may, maybe that feels very self-actualizing. It's the outside world mm-hmm. telling you that this thing that you were doing um, has value. The problem is you didn't have to live with the expectations that come with that. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, if someone pays a high price for an option, Right. I don't know if you know Black Shoals, uh, the Black Shoals option model, valuation model. But if you have an option that has a high strike price, right, the way that you increase value in that option is by increasing volatility. And um, volatility, because if you if you don't have volatility, if the expected values are all very closely associated with the strike price, then the the the, the range of outcomes obviously is is you're going to be very close to what you the price that you pay, right, right? right? So you need volatility to get those right tail outcomes, mm-hmm. right? The problem is that you also introduce those left tail <laughs> outcomes too. And in a software company, the way that you increase volatility is by hiring a ton of sales and marketing people, by hiring a ton of product people, by trying to push for growth, yeah. by trying to push triple, triple, double, double. In the process of trying to drive that growth, and increase that that volatility, you also increase the risk of abject failure, right? And for a long time, the venture community was like, you know, Craig, don't worry about it. We'll do this deal. When you quadruple the sales team and quintuple your marketing spend, um, if the burn rate explodes, don't worry. There's a Series C investor who will come in, mm-hmm. and they're going to pay. They're going to pay an even higher price, mm-hmm. right? And then we'll do a Series D. And, and doesn't this sound like a familiar storyline? Yeah. What if there's no Series D investor who's willing to invest? Uh-oh, now we're in trouble, right? Um, and so we just don't predicate our model. Like when we partner with our entrepreneurs, we tell them raise enough capital right now so that you don't need to raise again, hmm. right? Um, because, um, I mean, by the way, many of our companies have raised again. They've raised a lot again but they weren't forced to do it. Right. It wasn't the plan of, they weren't running at a brick wall, right? They were running, they were running or sorry, they were um, prudently and energetically walking towards a fork in the road yeah, as opposed to a wall. And mo- most of these outcomes that you're anticipating are going to be more M&A deals versus IPOs, right? Yeah. So I'd, I'd say, you know, look, um, I, I, it's interesting when, when, I think that a venture investor counts on the IPO market for liquidity because I think IPOs based on our research are three to 4% of all liquidity events. Mm-hmm. So again, this goes back to some of the flaws in that model. Yeah. Why would you have a base case that, that is dependent on a 3% likelihood outcome? That's crazy. Right. Um, and by the way, uh, I think an IPO profile kind of takes care of itself, but it's very, it's very dependent on whether or not the capital markets are the windows open or not. Mm. Um, our view is it is most likely that our portfolio partner is going to be acquired. 
Or there's this beautiful new thing that's happened, I think, over the last 20 years that's really important. Private equity has become a huge and important source of capital and liquidity in our market. So in 2000, um, I think less than 2% of all liquidity events in business software were private equity. I think in the last three years, every year, it's been more than 50%. Wow. Private equity. And so if you are ignoring private equity, you're ignoring most of the shots on goal. The other thing I think that's amazing about bringing a great private equity partner into your business at the right time is it changes the liquidity dynamic from yes or no. Do you want liquidity, Craig? Yes or no? Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I would partner with these entrepreneurs and we would decide to sell the business. And we, I live in like abject terror that 18 months later, we would feel like we sold too soon, mm-hmm. right? Because it was a great business and we got an offer and getting an offer is, you know, you have to have deep respect for the fact that you have an offer to secure liquidity. It, 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 if strategic is buying you, that's, that's no joke. That requires a lot of uh, coordination and effort and timing and all that good stuff. Um, the beauty of bringing a private equity partner into the business is that that liquidity question can be yes and no. Mm-hmm. As a founder, you can take some meaningful chips off the table, like, you know, a lot of capital off the table, but then also roll a very significant equity stake with that new partner um, um, and continue to drive value, mm. right? Um, as can your stakeholders. And so um, I think that the rise of private equity as both a source of capital and a source of liquidity in the software arena um, is one of the most interesting and powerful trends that's occurred in the last decade. And for look, for our companies, uh, let's, I'll just say this, for our companies, it's particularly powerful because if I, I, in, 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 um, I, I will say, sadly, if you're like the 9,999th Gen AI company um, <laughs> that has already raised like 80 million to get to 10 million revenue scale and you're burning a ton, um, you are probably not going to be interested in private equity. If you are a 15 to $20 million revenue software company or more with good growth, solid unit cons, um, great evidence of operating leverage, and an emerging leader in a category that has an attractive competitive density, meaning very few competitors, private equity is going to be very interested. And if, by the way, like you can create a great outcome at very sensible market valuations for all stakeholders in that transaction, um, that makes it even more compelling, right? And so if you think about our target customer, um, I'd say in particular for, for Peakspan's target customer entrepreneur, um, private equity ends up being a very interesting option. Not the definitive thing that we have to do, but another one of those forks in the road that could be really compelling and powerful. Yeah, no, that's really good. Well, Phil, um, why did you choose B2B software and specifically the, what is it, 12 themes in SaaS specifically that you've chosen? There, yeah. there was obviously a, like a, a lot of decision-making around what types of investments you were going to do. How did that all come about? Yeah, so... Um, I love business software. I love business software. Depending on who you talk to, it's a you know eight hundred billion to one point four trillion dollar a year industry in terms of revenue. Um, over seven hundred fifty thousand discrete competitors. Um, so you have this like huge market. Um, it's hyper fragmented. It grows very quickly. So uh, the software industry growth has been at least three to four x U.S. GDP for three decades running, 
right? At least three to four X US GDP. So um, you have this very large, very fragmented, rapidly growing sector. It also has multiple shots on goal in terms of growth. So some growth will occur from new use cases like Gen AI. Other growth will come from the recreation of existing use cases. So Salesforce was not the first CRM, right? They displaced Siebel. Um, and now there are other companies that are nipping at the heels of Salesforce in discrete vertical markets or use cases, right? So you also have this growth vector that, that can be driven by kind of um, um, the recreation of, of, of use cases. Um, we also love the business model, high gross and operating margin leverage if the model is executed correctly. Many Valley companies, I think, show poor operating leverage. They, they don't show the full potential of the business model, but um, it can be a very attractive business model. There's no inventory. There are no manufacturing dependencies. Mm -hmm. That's kind of neat, yep. right? Because those things are very hard. Yep. Um, we love the fact that the juice is worth the squeeze. Mm -hmm. So the number of buyer types in business software, also amazing. When I was coming up in the industry, um, the the uh, path to liquidity was a little bit like, remember when you were a kid, you'd go to ch the chart house and they'd give you the paper menu and the box of crayons to keep mm -hmm. you busy mm -hmm. while you're waiting for your your clam chowder, there'd be like a, uh, I remember there was a picture of like a, a little fish being eaten by a bigger fish being eaten by a bigger fish, like this big chain of fishes. Yeah. That was, that was the, the um, exit environment in software. Um, when I got into the industry, you would invest in a, a small software company and maybe it would go public, but more likely it was going to get acquired by a bigger fish. Right. Um, now you've seen this explosion in marine life. So McDonald's in the last several years has bought software companies, Nike buys software companies, Allstate insurance by software companies. So the marine life that cares about software has exploded. There's now like, you know, kind of um, uh, a squid and an octopus and other other marine life that likes that fish. Um, and then the great white shark is the one that I called out, which is private equity, right? Which is now over 50% of all of all, all liquidity events in software. So we love the shots on goal and liquidity, love the business model, love the market size, the growth. And then think of another industry that gets better valuation treatment than business software. Mm -hmm. I can't think of one that, that persistently has the valuation treatment that software does. So we love software for all of those reasons. I tell my entrepreneurs that they need to focus, right? I tell them to be like, focus, focus, focus as a, as a path to success. And um, we, we try and eat our own dog food at, at Peakspan. So not only are we encouraging our entrepreneurs to focus, but we also focus. So you mentioned that we invest in these 12 domains or blueprint themes, we call them in, in business software. We partner with entrepreneurs in about a dozen discrete segments of business software. For us, a domain would be payments or e-commerce or human capital management. And the way that we organize our effort is every team member spends all their time in a couple of those themes. Why only a couple? Because we don't believe that you can play all sports equally well, right? Um, we, we really push our team to become expert and athletic in two sports. And the reason we do that is because we think we can be a better partner to our entrepreneur if we understand the nuances of their segment intimately because we too are spending all our time in that segment, right? Then we also, remember I mentioned where we partner with our entrepreneurs. We're obsessed about being very stage focused. Mm -hmm. We don't do everything well. 
there are groups that, that we like to partner with that will help our companies move from Mount Rainier or Mont Blanc to Everest because they are expert at that. They know how to take a business from 30 or 40 million in revenue to 100 million and beyond. And we have enormous respect for that. That's not our wheelhouse. Our wheelhouse is that Mount Tam to Mount Rainier journey. And so we want to become absolutely kind of stone cold ninjas at that and get better and better at that every day. So, um, you, you know, I also mentioned to you that our product is not a fit for everyone. We also have a very stringent focus around serving our target customer that I, I've now descri described to you, I think, in gory detail. So um, within the confines of what we do, hopefully you also sense that just as we encourage our entrepreneurs to be focused, we also aspire to be very focused as well. Just to give us an understanding of a year in the life of Phil, <laughs> how many entrepreneurs will you meet in an average year versus how many uh, will you fund? Um, so, so I'd say like, if you look at our, our, cause you know, like any business, we run a pipeline, yeah. right? Um, a, a number of our competitors, if you are an associate, one of our competitors that has a low touch model, mm -hmm. um, that, that associate might have six to 8,000 names they're responsible for each associate as a young professional, each associate. Wow. So you can imagine the level of touch. These are the people, by the way, doing the dialing for dollars, mm -hmm. um, right? Um, our entire pipeline, I think, across all stages, all themes, is probably five thousand. Wow! Across the entire firm, touch. That's for a team of of you said twenty seven ish people. Twenty seven people, and not not all those companies are even companies that we've done outreach to yet. They're just folks that we're kind of monitoring from afar. But our entire pipeline, all stages is a fraction of what um, one associate's pipeline would be at some of our competitors that use um, what I'd call as a, um, a cold calling or an engine room model. And, you, and you've built technology to help to kind of monitor these companies that you're tracking, right? You use a lot of technology for insights and signals and such. Yeah, we actually have received two patents on our technology platform. So we started building this platform about 12 years ago. Um, and the, um, the goal of the platform was instead of having our most junior person in the firm at the tip of the spear doing outreach to entrepreneurs, which most of our competitors do, mm -hmm. and they do that because um, you don't know if a company is a fit for your business until you've qualified them, like in any other, uh, any other industry, mm -hmm. right? And so most of our competitors will use a junior person to, in candor to qualify the company and qualify that there's an investment opportunity. And the senior person will only become involved um, when it's time to close. It's a little bit like that movie Boiler Room yeah. where the young, young kids are like calling people. And then if they get someone on the line that wants to invest, they yell Rico. And then they, they like hand the phone over to a, <laughs> a partner like Ben Affleck who's like, you know, here I'm – I'm filled her. Uh, please meet you. Yeah. We think that's kind of an icky. That's kind of an icky dynamic for an entrepreneur who has their, their net worth in the illiquid stock of their business. That's not a terrific way to reinforce product quality. Yeah. Right. It's not a. It's not a great way to reinforce that I'm. I am expert at helping you. So we wanted to put the partner on the line with the entrepreneur in the first call. And the challenge we ran into is how do you make sure that you're then not putting the partner on with people that are not your target customer? Yeah. Um, and so we watched what was happening in business software with you know companies like the time, like Marketo and Salesforce, 
And, and we were like, you know, what if we did that in our business? And so we started building technology that, that just kind of watches um, companies as they progress and captures signal data about those businesses from dozens and dozens of sources. And we use that signal data to stitch together a profile of whether or not we think you are a fit for PeakSpan. And then we only do outreach to companies where we feel like there's very strong resonance, mm. where we feel like you're our target customer. But then importantly, we make sure that in the first outreach and every outreach that you're getting um, not only that senior team member who is the lead in your domain for PeakSpan, but also multiple members of the team. Um, and what we want to do is actually reach you well before you're, you're calling the ball on a financing. Yeah. And we're going to try and give you a free trial of our product experience multiple times over the course of a meaningful amount of time so that you really have high conviction that PeakSpan is the partner of choice with whom you want to work. And so we've kind of oriented that entire model around a much higher touch yeah. with a lower, smaller population of entrepreneurs where we have deep conviction that they are our ideal customer. Most of our target customers would tell you they would prefer to speak to the partner mm -hmm. and not to the most junior person, you know, who was playing beer pong at, at uh, college last year, right? right? Um, God love them. I mean, I, not, not, not in any way being dismissive of that, but most of them would prefer to speak to the partner because that's the person that is going to be on their board. That's the person who they will be relying on for wisdom and experience and guidance. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to kind of provide access to that right away and have crafted an engagement model around that obsession with showcasing the quality of our firm's product from the first interaction. Phil, can you talk to me about some of the criteria just at a high level, I don't know, 30 to 60 seconds, just to help our listeners understand how you evaluate uh, an investable company? Yeah. What are some of the basics? So there? Once, once we make sure that you are our target customer, and what I mean by that is that you are interested in and feel aligned with this pragmatic approach to company development. With that foundation set, we are looking for businesses that are um, showing very attractive growth in market segments that we think have strategic potential, but that are not in the white, hot, chewy center of whatever Silicon Valley is interested in. Why? Because Silicon Valley actually ends up destroying a lot of value in the process of creating value. What do I mean by that? If you look at every segment that USVCs get excited about, what happens after they get excited about it, right? Um, if we look at, remember six years ago, online food delivery, how hot that was? Mm -hmm. um, um, if you fast forward the clock, there ends up being thousands of companies that get created to go after that opportunity. And they, they almost hurt each other, right? Because the level of, of ferocious venture-funded competition that they show, a great collegiate white paper could look at the symbiotic relationship between Google AdWords and U.S. venture capital investment. <laughs> um, but um, yeah. um, it's a little bit like in the movie, um, oh, my kids were little, I watched the movie uh, Finding Nemo with them. Like I, I could write a doctoral thesis on the use of nuance in Finding Nemo. There's a great scene in Finding Nemo where Nemo, or, or Dory rather, is looking for Nemo. Dory pops up out of the water near a pier, um, near the, the, um, the opera in, in symphony in Sydney rather. And remember like, there's like a bunch of yeah. seagulls there. And like one seagull says mine. And then all the seagulls go like mine, 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 mine. 
That, yeah, yeah. that is U.S. venture capital, right? So they're get excited about most recently Gen AI, and you know, within yeah. like two years, you have ten thousand Gen AI companies. Um, um, Kosla said in an article in the FT that he thinks that eighty—I forget the exact number—but I think he said something along the lines of like eighty to ninety percent of these Gen AI companies that have been funded are going to go away, um, and that there was this kind of Me Too um, frenzy in the venture community around who's my Gen AI bet. Right. And so we avoid that. Yeah. We look for categories that are strategic, but where there's not kind of a stupid level of um, competitive in, in intensity, competitive density. Um, and we look for businesses where there's shared vision around um, obvious areas for growth. And then we partner with the entrepreneurs to help them not only with the capital to drive that growth, but also with expertise and um uh, engagement to help them realize that growth. Okay. I want to talk about the future. What are, what are you thinking over the next 12 to 18 months? Can we talk about some of the headwinds and tailwinds and narrow that down into sort of the next 12 to 18 months priorities for you and how our listeners might be able to participate in some way and help? Yeah. So I'd say last year was tough, right? Um, if you look at the data, it, um, it supports my intuition, um, based on my experience, which is, um, I think last year was one of the toughest years in business software, just the economic environment that we've seen in the last 20 years. Um, probably as you're getting close to being as bad as 2008, um, 2009 for business software. Um, uh, so if you look at, there's a, 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 a company called Paddle that has a, a product called ProfitWell, and they put out these really interesting market reports based on 34,000 SaaS companies that use their SAS KPI offering, and um, their index data suggests what, what we've all seen, which I think is that there was a recession in software last year. Not for all companies, but a lot of companies saw the sales environment get much tougher last year. Um, the good news is that we're seeing that starting to change. It almost uh, felt perfectly correlated with the Fed saying that they were not going to raise rates anymore, and that the, the view that rates would likely come down over some period of time that seemed almost perfectly correlated with a um uh a return to a better kind of buying and sales environment if that makes sense um mm -hmm. it was interesting for us you know we we partner with companies that are showing very strong growth and uh if you'd asked me this time last year phil how many new partnerships will peakspan do in 2023 i would have said probably 10 which is our normal pacing mm -hmm. for our firm, um, we did four. Um, and so we were having a hard time finding companies that were showing strong growth and that wanted to raise. So the pool of companies that were showing strong growth reduced. And then a lot of entrepreneurs like, I don't, I, you know, it's, it's, there's a hurricane outside. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go for a run during a hurricane. I'm gonna wait until after the hurricane stops. And so yeah. Um, yeah. we just saw a lot of companies saying, look, I'm not interested in raising right now. Um, What's really fascinating is we have four um, partnerships under term sheet right now. So in Q1 of this year, we will do as many new investments as we did in all of last year, which is which is pretty neat. So that's so interesting. Data point, right? and just, and just, yeah, so all of 2023 was four deals and you have four deals under contract in just the first, what, two months that's of right. 2024. That's right. So is that is, is that a sign of what's to come? Are we opening back up, you think? Yeah, I think we, um, 
I think we we will see it. Peak's been a really busy year. Um, when I look at what our portfolio partners are seeing in terms of business performance, it does feel early early optimism that we're seeing a much better sales environment. A number of our portfolio partners are having record months and quarters uh, after a more challenging sales environment in 2023. Um, again, the good news with our model is because our portfolio partners have been very prudent in how they've capitalized their business. Um, unlike some of their Bay Area peers who were under massive pressure to keep driving, keep growing, like um, our portfolio partners were able to be a bit more um, um, uh, patient, right? Last year. Um, and so I, I feel like um, this year, the business environment feels better. The investment environment feels better. It would be great if the exit liquidity market started to feel better too, which I, I think, uh, fingers crossed, we'll, we'll hopefully start seeing by the end of the year. Because um, that's kind of the trifecta <laughs> in our world. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But that, that, I, I actually think, I think 2024 will be a better year. And I think 2025 will be even better. That's my my um, armchair political economist view. And so your priorities over the next 12 to 18 months, what can we share with the listeners about that and how they might be able to help? Um, so our priorities are um, to aggressively support the expectations that we set with our entrepreneurs to helping them continue to grow. Our priorities are to continue to become um, even more expert in our craft as great students of, of what we do, right? So we are, we are always trying to be better and better. Um, and like, I think some of the new, some of the new disciplines that we've taken on, if, if that's of interest, we started building, I think Craig, you got some exposure to this at our offsite um, or our, our scale up event. Um, we started recognizing that we had a lot of um, wisdom that we could share. We also have this wonderful team. I think Craig, you've worked with a number of them um, that, that work with our entrepreneurs almost like McKinsey or BCG, right? They try, they'll take on, I, and I use that purposely. They, they don't, they don't come in and try and like, in, like interfere in the business. They're more, more resource. You want to do market research, competitive analysis, pricing studies, organizational modeling. They help with yeah. all of that. You've seen them in action. They're wonderful. My, my team is amazing. The, the third leg of this tool yeah. that we've been building out, we continue to build out is what we call our peak span expert community. Um, this yep. is now 300 executives and it is um, operational experts. So it's people that are like just gurus in sales or marketing or finance or strategic development in each of our blueprint themes and in each of our different motions, like enterprise motion versus a high velocity motion. And then we've also started building yep. out relationships with prospective buyers. So in our human capital management effort, we have eight uh, CHROs, um, most of them are, are kind of in semi-retirement, but kind of call it four, uh, uh, eight former CHROs of Global 2000 companies. And that's also true in our supply chain effort and in our e-commerce effort. We have, we've worked hard to partner with um, folks that, that are um, the target customer of our entrepreneur. And that's been a wonderful asset for our companies, right? Because we're able to not only provide our direct experience, not only provide the excellence that our team can bring to bear in a strategic consultative capacity, but we can also provide this wonderful tapestry of experience and perspective through this Peaks Bay Expert community. So we're going to continue to build that out. And then I think, you know, we hired my colleague, Philip Cunningham, a year and a bit ago. Yeah. And he is basically the um, vice president of helping our entrepreneurs make money. So... 
Um, mm -hmm. He will work with our entrepreneurs to uh, build strategic awareness with strategic incumbents in their category and with the best private equity partners that we think would be most useful and impactful to the business. And he helps them start doing that um, eight to 10 quarters before we anticipate an event because that's how you maximize wow. optionality and value. And so those are some of the motions that we're working on. Um, we also, for anyone who's listening, who's an entrepreneur, um, we also are big believers in life is long and karma is powerful. If we can be helpful to you on any front, uh, don't hesitate to reach out. Um, you know, we are more than delighted to share our wisdom experience and research, um, and be, be, of, be of use, um, to, uh, to the entrepreneurial community. All right, Phil, tell me about what you believe the world needs to understand or embrace that will make the world a better place in the coming years. Gosh, I think if we could all just engage with each other with more pragmatism, um, humanity, and patience, um, our collective uh, uh, our, our collective satisfaction or utility would be would be meaningfully improved. And I, I'm trying to live that. It's hard for me because sometimes when you have a lot of experience that you've that you've earned, um, you feel like you see what needs to be done so clearly. <laughs> um, yeah. But I, I think I think having real empathy for for each other, um, um, having patience with each other, and trying to appreciate the context of the other person's perspective um, can be so wonderful in terms of uh, you know finding alignment around what needs to be done. What's something that's happened to you in your life or career that few people will believe? Um, that's interesting. Well, I am, I, I'll give you a random one. Um, I was a platoon honor graduate at boot camp. Um, and, uh, <laughs> I was, I, I, I wasn't, and remain very proud of that because it, it was, um, both, uh, a, here kind of selected um thing as well as as um the folks that that um you know were the official graders of of, of my platoon and then at, at boot camp and um uh that's a random one that when you if you meet me like you know me for a while you never, probably never would have would have guessed that but i was i'm really I'm, just no. a fun fun fact I was, i'm pretty proud of uh pretty proud of that it was a i think i think most young people would benefit going to the army's um advanced camp um um, that, that cadets go through, I think that would be a, uh, a great, a great experience for them. Um, it, uh, it builds character and it helps you really develop a wonderful sense of mission and team. If you could go back and tell yourself one thing early in your career, what would you say? Um, I would say be patient with yourself. I, I was in a hurry all the time. So, I put a lot of pressure on myself. So let's say you got sent back in a time machine to visit your 18 year old self to give them advice for their future. You have 10 seconds to say five words. What are they? Stay focused, but be patient. I'm going to ask that you put yourself in the shoes of one of our listeners out there who's a brand new entrepreneur who's just starting out. What advice would you have for things they should avoid or any tips for having a higher probability of being successful? Keep the scope of your mission, your initial mission, as tight as possible. Be obsessed with an initial scope 
that you can communicate to other human beings, rally them around. It does not mean that you are surrendering your grander ambition. It just means that you're seeing that grander ambition as a series of steps. What that practically means is you don't need to serve every use case, every vertical market, um, every customer profile, be at peace with a much more narrow scope, own and become expert at that narrow scope. And like, like a stone that is dropped in a pond that ripples out, expand gracefully and elegantly over time into that larger and larger scope. So would your advice change for somebody that was more emerging, who's built a prototype, or maybe they haven't quite acquired their 10, first 10 customers yet? Would it change between the newbie to the emerging entrepreneur to maybe somebody that is already very successful, wants to get ahead? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that, um, that, um, that it's, it's a little bit like that, that athletic journey that I was talking about, right? The, the billet mandate yeah. you give to the young athlete is different than the pro, right? Um, so yeah. um, I think when you are in prototype or early, um, massive focus is your friend, right? Um, mm -hmm. When you are becoming more successful, um, and you know this, delegation, culture, um, leadership by example, those become critical to mm -hmm. scaling. And, 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 you know, Craig, one reason that we keep coming back to you and engaging your excellence with our entrepreneurs is because you are exceptional at identifying the culture of our organizations understanding fit, understanding the, the psychology of the leadership team and finding talent that doesn't only have the right kind of experience and can do, but also finding people that will thrive in that environment. I think that's a, that's like almost like, um, like you're a sorcerer because doing that is to my mind, so challenging. We're so impressed with the, your ability to do that. But I'd say those later stages, it becomes a lot, about what leadership team did you build around you? Um, how did you uh, align those leaders? What kind of culture have you built, right? Those things become just so critical um, as you scale. I don't know if you'd agree with yeah. that or not, but. I, I think those are fantastic call outs for each of the stages, 100%. And thank you for the, for the personal share for me too. It means a lot. Um, all right, if you could randomly, well, let's say that you had randomly had $10,000 drop in your lap today, what would you do with it? $10,000 in my lap. Yeah. If I dropped you 10,000 on your lap, say do with it what you want, what would you do? Gosh. Um, you know, my, my, um, uh, I don't, I don't know if I have an immediate purpose. I'm deeply, probably a deeply unsatisfying answer with you. I think I would need to like think about what I would do with that. <laughs> okay. Well, what, what happens, what happens if it's a hundred thousand? Does it change? Does it become more clear? hundred grand. Um, you know, I, I think I would look for, at this point in my life and my career, I think I would look for a cause that inspires me and support that. What if it's a million? I don't know if it changes much. I think the stakes around what cause it is <laughs> starts to become much more in focus. <laughs> Any particular causes that uh, pull your heartstrings? Um, I like causes broadly that um, empower people to have greater agency. Um, and inspire them mm. and, and inspire them to, um, to do their best. Right. So I, I love, um, groups that work with, um, young people. Um, I love groups that, that help people identify potential career paths. Um, I think those are really powerful kind of missions and, and callings. 
Okay. And if you had to start your career all over again today from scratch, but you had the benefit of keeping all the accumulated knowledge you've gained up to this point, what would you build or work on? You know, I, I, um, I've asked, I've thought about this in the past and this is maybe going to sound boring. Um, I would get into this field even more quickly and, um, I would try and do it even better. I would avoid some of the mistakes that I made early in my career, but Craig, I, I wake up every morning and I pinch myself that I get the chance to work with the entrepreneurs that I work with. Um, bizarrely, I love it even when it's like really gnarly. Um, I derive enormous satisfaction from the journey of helping entrepreneurs navigate. I love it. My biggest challenge is turning it off. I tell my 18 year old, my 20 year old, you can have a career where your challenge is turning it off because it's not work, right? Because you, because you are so, you identify so strongly with it. And that's, I think that's one of the keys to, to happiness. Not the only key to happiness, but one of the keys to happiness. Um, so I love this, this, this mission, this challenge. Um, and I feel very self-actualized that uh, I get to have anything to do with the success of my entrepreneurs. Um, so I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change anything. To give our listeners even more of a 360 degree of view of who you are and what really lights you up and recharges your battery, when you have to turn it off, you talked about cooking, right? Are there other non-obvious or more personal things about you that you're passionate about outside of work or any fun rituals or mindfulness practices that make life more meaningful for you? Um, I, um, I derive enormous satisfaction spending time with my wife, my kids. Um, we are blessed with um, an incredible community of friends who in their own right are doing things that um, that I'm in awe of in terms of their accomplishments. Um, I, uh, I, I, I love simple pleasures of life. My wife and I go for a walk with our two dogs every morning, uh, unless we're traveling. And, um, that's an amazing way for me to recharge my battery and just feel connected to, to my life partner and spouse. Um, I love the moment before I put a dish that I have made on a table of my friends and family yes. and could see. Yeah. can see their appreciation for something that I've created. That's one of the reasons I love cooking is because it, it brings people together. And um, uh, I, I just, I drive real joy from that, that second before you put the item on the table and you can see all of your friends faces reflected in the candlelight and just take, take enormous pride in the fact that you've brought them all together for something meaningful and connected. Okay. So last question. Uh, let's end on this one. Why are you excited about the future? Because there's so much promise. I mean, I, I will tell you, um, despite my earlier comments talking about the density of the Gen AI industry, I, I do think we are about to embark on um, another fundamental phase shift in technology that is as exciting as the internet. Um, the impact that these technologies will have, not only the technology industry, but industry in general, I think is going to be stunning. I'm excited for that. Um, I'm excited when I interact with my kids and their friends by some of the lessons that they've learned from the mistakes that they've seen the generations that preceded them make um, mm. and their, their commitment to doing better. That's inspirational to me as well. Um, I'm inspired by the, the just um, uh, stunning quality of the entrepreneurs that I get access to and so encouraged by how entrepreneurship has expanded globally. That is a good thing for humanity, right? I love that, that Silicon Valley in the US can, say, can, can claim um, some influence in having 
pioneered um, risk taking and support of entrepreneurs um, and some of the best practices. But I also just love the fact that it's now become a global, truly global phenomena. I think that's what, that's great for humanity. And so I find that to be really positive and encouraging as well. I'm also, you know me, I'm an optimistic person. I think, um, I think the species will figure things out, even if it doesn't go as quickly or as seamlessly as we'd like. Um, I, um, I, I tend to believe uh, in a half cup, a, a cup half full mentality. I think we will figure things out. Well, Phil, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show and for your partnership and your trust and for the time that it's so hard to get on your schedule and for you, you know, carving out this much for this conversation. It's it's meant the world to me. And I know a lot of other people out there are going to really appreciate uh, it as well. So thanks so much for coming well, on the show. I just want to say, Craig, right back at you. The reason I was so excited to do this is because I hold you in such high esteem. And anybody in your ecosystem is a friend of mine and a friend of Peakspan. And so I, I hope that this content proves interesting to um your listeners. Um, and I, you know, I just want to commend you for being an excellent partner to our entrepreneurs and excellent partner to Peaksman. We, we really appreciate and value our relationship with you. So right back at you. All right. Well, that's a wrap, everyone. Thanks so much. We'll, uh, we'll talk soon. And that's a wrap on this episode of the Bear Hug Experience. Thank you so much for joining us. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please give us a like, click, follow, or subscribe. We appreciate you taking a moment to give us a quick rating and a written review so we can continue to expand our reach and inspire the next generation of leaders to help make this world a better place. You can also contribute to the conversation around this specific episode by using the comments section at whatever platform you're on. And last but not least, if you have direct feedback, a question, or a guest you'd like to suggest that we have on the show, please shoot us an email at podcast at bearhugrecruiting.com or visit bearhugrecruiting.com forward slash podcast. Thanks so much for listening. And we look forward to having you join us again on another episode of the Bear Hug Experience. Whoa.